Hello, and welcome to the Permanent Podcast, a podcast that is part movie club, all Craig. I am Craig Wells, aka Permanent Handle, and on this episode, we are talking about Phase 2 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. If you have not listened to my episode where I review all the movies in Phase 1, this is going to be very similar to that, so I very, I very much recommend that you go listen to that one. Also, you know, just like the last episode, full spoilers, full send, not just for the movies we discuss, but for the entirety of the MCU. Now, Phase 2, like Phase 1, we start off with Iron Man, Iron Man 3. This movie is good. I like to see Phase 1, Phase 2, they both, they start off pretty strong. Tony is dealing with a lot of the... Uh, post-traumatic effects of being a superhero in New York. Um, you know, the events of New York, saving the world and everything, almost sacrificing his life. And I think this movie does a very good job of, like, sometimes anxiety attacks are caused by people pestering you about a subject you don't want to talk about. Sometimes it's... Sometimes they just come out of nowhere. And you kind of just have to deal with it. So that in and of itself was, it, it was, very rarely do you see anxiety attacks um, depicted so well. And and, and, and like, I, I just enjoyed, it was engaging for me to see someone with mental health issues, like, like seeing their battle through it. You know, I... I think that that makes for a really good story, especially when it's written and portrayed as well as this one was. Um, other notes to talk about. There were lots of good Iron Man sequences in this. I I think a lot of this movie has to do with um, prototype, the Mark 42, where, you know, he gestures with his hand and it flies all around and whatnot. Uh, and, and I think that that's interesting, you know. When when he gets it to work and when it doesn't work, when he has to fly it across the country and when he and like when he's able to shoot it onto Pepper and onto Killian and like all that nonsense. Like, I think every instance of the Mark 42 usage was very cool, specifically when he's trapped in, you know, like the Mandarin base or whatever, and he only has like one arm and the other leg and he just like has to like fight his way through using those things um i i like those a lot i i they were just of the three movies i think the first iron man still has the best iron man sequences but this one this is a very very close second um the antagonist for this movie killian you know i think they kind of wanted to do what they did in iron man 2 with the, you know, the Tony Stark rival, like, comes up and, like, bites him in the butt and all that nonsense. This one does it way better. Because, like, not only is, like, Killian written better, he's portrayed better. He has, you know, the confidence right from the start. And it goes, you know, from suave to menacing, like, very, very quickly. A lot of people criticize this movie because they thought that the whole Mandarin plot twist where the guy that we thought was the Mandarin wasn't actually the Mandarin, you know, a lot of people criticize that plot twist. And, like, I understand that, 
I don't think it's like it's definitely an underwhelming plot twist, I think, but it is definitely effective in the sense that like we knew Killian was going to be the bad guy all along, so like that being the plot twist was like no one was surprised at that, but when he became the main antagonist, like when it was finally revealed, you know, that was fun. It was good. I, I really liked that that power exchange. I thought it was done very well. The one character I thought was super done dirty, like, you know, you can complain about the Mandarin reveal all you want. The character that was done the most dirty was Maya, the character played by Rebecca Hall. Like, I really wanted her to be helpful in this movie because she shows up you know on tony's doorstep 40 40 come on 20 years after the switzerland party and we're like oh good someone we had someone from tony's past being you know being a terrorist and now we have someone from tony's past that's like willing to help him but then we find out that no, she's connected to it too. She may be begrudging about it, but like she's active and willing. And that was more frustrating to me. I think Maya would have been a better asset to the team than a henchman or like an an antagonist and assistant. The sequences in Tennessee, you know. That's what I remembered the most about this movie, because I haven't seen this movie since I saw it in theaters when it came out eight years ago. A fun story about this movie, seeing it in theaters, was I saw, I didn't decide to go see this movie until like the last minute, because my mom, or my dad and my brother were seeing a different movie, and I'm like, oh, I want to go see Iron Man 3. But the, we were going super late at night, so the only showing of this movie that was left was the 3d version and this was like right when they switched from the blue red lenses to the clear lenses which is uh why i decided to do it because i couldn't see 3d movies with my prosthetic prosthetic eye because they were blue and red but i'm like oh if they're clear then it'll probably work um no (laughs) it just gave me a headache so like i would put the glasses on for like 40 minutes so i can like see the picture clearly then i would take those glasses off to like not have a headache but then it would make the picture blurry, so it could only do it for like five or ten minutes before I'm like, all right, I gotta see the rest of this movie. Um, but like I said, the Tennessee sequences, I first of all, I remember it being a majority of the movie. It is not. He's in Tennessee for like 15, 20 minutes max. And he spends, it takes a long time to get there. You know, in my memory, it was like, okay, set up. He tells off the Mandarin, his house blows up, he goes to Tennessee, like boom, 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 boom. Uh, not the case. He doesn't get to Tennessee for like 50 minutes and then he's there for 20 minutes and then he goes, then he gets kidnapped and he, the whole uh, freighter scene, the oil rig scene, the oil rig scene was long. That scene was like 40 minutes. Like, not that I'm complaining. I like long climaxes in movies because I think it gives us it doesn't make the finale seem rushed. Rushed, sorry. Wow, forgot how to speak. So, typically in a sequence like the house party protocol, most movies would take that scene and it'd be like, 
all right, we're going to do this cool thing for like three or four minutes. But like, no, the house party protocol took place like over the course of the entire scene. Like it was always happening in the background. And that added a really cool dynamic to that scene, despite the fact it took forever. Also, I think this movie set a weird precedent for what the future of the MCU was going to become. So Pepper gets, you know, injected with the Experium, Experium, whatever it's called. And she becomes like this super cool fighting machine. She like does that cool kickflip off a of Tony, punches an Iron Man suit, gets the Iron Man arm, blasts Killian, boom, 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 boom. Like, I was, when I saw that, I'm like, oh, this is the future of Pepper. Pepper is, like, in it now. No, she's not. She's She isn't for, like, ten more years, Craig. Sorry to, sorry to tell you. Which is disappointing. And another thing that I thought was weird was, like, a major character point for Tony is that he decides to get the shrapnel removed so he doesn't need the arc reactor in his chest. And I feel like that should have been a bigger point of characterization throughout the movie because it's a footnote at the end, like, oh, we got Pepper fixed, so I decided, I guess I'll get fixed too. Like, no, bud. You've been living with shrapnel in your chest for five years now. This is not a wrap-up sequence that we're doing. Uh, This movie was funny. It had good action. It had a good story. I think this movie deserves a lot more than people um, give it. Like, could the Mandarin have had the actual Mandarin had a bigger part? Sure. Could the plot twist have been better? Sure. Was it still fun? Yes, it was. So, I'm giving Iron Man 3 a 7.5 out of 10. And you can bite me if you disagree. Alright, on to the next one. Thor, The Dark World, is a bad movie. Now, listen, it's no secret that Thor, The Dark World, is the weakest MCU movie. Like, among the weakest. You know, if you were to look up IGN or Wired or any other of those, like, comic book sources and, like, basically any website that will list all the MCU movies that will rank them, they're gonna put Incredible Hulk and Thor Dark World at the bottom, interchangeably between the two. And they're right. These two movies are the worst. Listen, if you remember back when I talked about Thor, I I said that a big complaint is that it can never decide if it wants to be a superhero movie on Earth or a Norse mythology movie on Asgard. This movie, I will give it credit, did a better job at establishing kind of what it wanted. It was definitely much more about the relationship of Asgard. Like, 80% 80% of the movie is sent is spent on Asgard. I just think Asgard is boring as heck. Listen, this movie is just, it brings a lot to the table and executes none of it well. Like, 
Asgard is like it's a it like it's pretty. You know, whoever designed it did a good job designing it, but it also felt lifeless. We don't see characters in Asgard that aren't named or guards. Those are the only two characters you see in Asgard, which like made it incredibly boring. There was no like if we're going to spend so much time in Asgard, I was kind of hoping like maybe it could have given us a little bit of a slice of life type deal. Maybe live on Asgard for a little while. But no, we're on Asgard for like 45 minutes because they are on Asgard for like 45 minutes. Um, I still think Loki is a poorly written character in the Thor movies, or at least the first two, right? Uh, the only good plot point that this movie brought that I thought was like unique and cool was when Loki betrays Thor by cutting off his hand, right? While they're on the dark world. Um, and when that initially happened, I'm like, great. Loki telegraphed another betrayal. Like, like when I first saw that, my initial note was going to be his betrayals are too predictable. You know, they're not fun. His mischievous is, you know, you could set your watch by it. But when it turned out to be like, he was actually like, it was part of their plan. You know, I was pleasantly surprised. That was a cool scene. However, that's it. That, that was kind of it. Um, Eric, Dr. Eric Selvig, they, listen, whatever they could have done to his character, they chose the worst option, right? They made him a disgraced scientist, a disgraced professor, and now he spends half the movie without pants. You know, half of his screen time without pants. And, like, I don't know if they were trying to make him funny or if they just didn't have anything else for him to do. A lot of the characters that weren't Jane or Thor or Loki were given things to do just to have things to do, right? So Darcy has this new intern, Ian, who's only there so Darcy can have somebody new to bounce off of. And then Eric, I feel like, was only put in an institution so that way Darcy could go get him. And, like, that was kind of Darcy's big, important character thing to do. However, that took half a scene. I think the way they discover the ether is stupid. It's just chilling in a storage crate in London. Yeah, okay, no one's ever trespassed there before. And, like, they, yeah, they do the thing where, like, the kids are throwing shoes in there and whatnot. Kids are stupid. There is no way that a kid did not go missing in there. There is no way that a kid's like, oh, I'm interested to see what's on the other side. All right? We've all seen, you know, kid movies. They are they are too curious for their own good. I, I That ether was, like, there purely for convenience. And talk about things that were there for convenience. When they're on the dark world, Loki's dead. Dead. And Jane and Thor have to like find a way out of the dark world and then her phone starts ringing and like it just so happened that the cave they went into was also one of those like gravity portals cool how convenient listen all the sets were subpar you know there's that the scene where thor makes his entrance and he starts fighting alongside you know his brethren and whatnot and they're at that like camp looking place in the field 
that set looked awful. It was like kind of busy, but like the buildings were too far apart or like the huts like weren't close enough together to where it really felt like a village and all these people were like clumped together with like awkward open spaces. I'm like, this is this doesn't feel right. And so, you know, subpar sets, all the action sequences I did not like. You know, I don't like Thor's movements. His, co- I, I, I've said this from the be- very beginning of Thor, like for as long as I've watched him, the hammer is so small and dense, it does not, it does not make for good combat choreography. It's very awkward and heavy, and so like when he's like swinging it around and throwing it at people, cool, fine. When he's like laying down the law and he's like bringing it over his head, cool. But as soon as he has to start like dueling with someone and he's like clashing swords with someone, except he doesn't have a sword, he has a hammer. It's just awkward to look at. I I do not enjoy watching Thor fight unless he is throwing the hammer or using his electric powers. And there's just a lot of awkward fighting in this scene. This movie just has a lot of awkward scenes that I feel like don't contribute to much. And also, the antagonist is boring. We got, listen, we had an opportunity here to really explore Loki, right? I feel like this, I feel like the Thor sequel should have been dealing with Loki head on, right? Because every other time we've dealt with Loki, the two other times that we've dealt with Loki in this franchise, he was either behind somebody else he was either behind the frost giants in the first movie or he was behind the chitari in avengers and i'm like guys you guys are wasting loki loki has the um, has the potential to be an amazing dynamic character but instead you introduced the dark elves just so they could be beaten in the same movie i understand that this was supposed to introduce like the infinity stones but holy crap, you could not have done it in a more boring manner. The best character in this movie is Zachary Levi's character, whose name his whose name is either Fandral or Frandral. I would be surprised if it was the second one. Listen, the best way to put it is I've seen this movie twice, and twice I have fallen asleep during it. This movie is kind of important for plot reasons because. If you don't watch this movie, eventually you'll be like, oh, where do these characters go? But I don't recommend it. Five and a half out of ten. I, yeah, bad movie. It deserves the worst spots. Moving on to Captain America and the Winter Soldier. Um, This is also the first time I've watched this movie since I've seen it, since I went and saw it in theaters, which like, I've said that before about other movies in this like rewatch and I'm going to say it again later on, you know, other movies are in this same situation. However, this was the movie I was most nervous going back and rewatching because when people would ask me, oh, what's your favorite MCU movie? This was my default answer for a very long time. So. I kind of 
had to challenge my nostalgia for what I remembered the first time I saw it and how well it actually held up. Is this still my favorite MCU movie? (laughs) We're going to see. Now, this movie starts off very, very strong. Uh, It starts off with us meeting Sam Wilson and him and Steve have like instant chemistry. The way they banter and the recommendation that Sam gives Steve, there's a naturalness to it. And it was cool. And also, we got a really cool relationship between Steve and Natasha. And regarding Natasha and Sam, I think that they just had really strong relationships with Steve throughout this movie. And it was one of those things where I wanted to see where these relationships went despite the fact that I kind of already knew where they went. So on top of having good character chemistry, it also starts off with a very strong action sequence. The scene that I remembered the most from this movie, watching it the first time, was the intro boat sequence, where Steve just halo jumps without a parachute and takes out an entire boat of guys. Now, rewatching it, that scene is not as strong as I remembered it. I remember that scene having some of the best shield action, like Captain America's shield, shield throwing, fighting, like in the whole MCU. Not so much the case. The scene kind of didn't really climax in terms of intensity. I feel like there should have been like one more cool fight sequence in that scene. But overall, it is a very strong start to the movie. Also, in terms of fighting, this movie gives a lot of really good fighting throughout the course of the entire movie. It's half spy drama, half action movie. And that that's kind of the thing with most Marvel movies, is you go into it and it's half one genre, half action movie. Which, personally, I'm really okay with. I think that action movies are a good delivery vehicle for other genres of movie. And this movie was like, it wasn't so much of a spy movie. It was, I don't even know. This doesn't even count as a genre, but like it's, it's corruption. It's a genre of corruption. But in terms of action, something that I really liked was seeing Nick Fury in the action. We've seen him in a few movies up to this point and up to this point, he was the director. He didn't really, like, get into it. In the Avengers, he fired a few shots at Loki. He was involved in the chase sequence out of the headquarters where the Tesseract was being kept. But aside from that, we didn't really get a lot of Nick Fury in action. And this movie gave us a lot more of that, specifically, like, with the chase sequence in the car. And I think that was a really cool sequence. We don't we didn't get to see him in action much before that, and we don't see him much in action after that. Like it takes us until Captain Marvel, which I think is five years away and you know, in Marvel, five years from now is fourteen movies. So what I'm saying is it was an appreciate an appreciated rarity. One of the tones of this movie that I think it does really well is the idea of Steve being disapproving of shield up until this point shield helped iron man recruited steve 
gave you know Bruce Banner uh, a place to like feel safe with his work and it also you know Thor's there too but the the fact of the matter is up until this point we're like S.H.I.E.L.D. is a government agency and even though we've been given reason not to trust them in the end they are S.H.I.E.L.D. it's kind of like it's the price we pay we don't know everything but we know it's for the greater good watching Steve question that I think was a very interesting theme for this movie it starts steve has this conversation with nick or with fury they call him nick so much in this movie despite the fact that with every movie after that he insists on going by fury which like whatever fine um regardless steve has this conversation with fury where he's like where fury's like we want the insight program because we want to stop threats before they arise and Steve is like, well, that's like holding a gun to someone's head and calling it protection. And watching Steve go against the grain, I think, is important, not much, not just for like the character's arc and how it will eventually lead into like civil war, but also for, I think, the audience's arc. The, the audience doesn't get an arc, but you know what I mean where the audience it get it has the opportunity to be like right in the end the shield is the military and the military always has you know questionable motives as we, so i think that that's just a it, it's our surrogate to be like right we need to remember shield is <laughs> shield shady shield is shady so we see steve be critical of shield even before it gets fully compromised and after it gets fully compromised fury is like all right so this is how we're gonna build this is how we're gonna bring shield back and steve is like um i don't know if we should bring back shield and i feel like that's a conversation that like if you were to do that to like world war ii steve he would be like all right yes shield very important let's do shield again but I just think that having that dynamic of Steve understanding that S.H.I.E.L.D. is not doesn't only get in the way, but by nature is untrustworthy is a really cool. It's, it's, I think it's a really cool part of the movie. Furthermore, the Arnim Zola plot twist was something I also remembered heavily from watching this the first time in my head. Remembering it, that was the big plot twist. No, it is one scene in the first act for like four minutes. I just had this memory of like, oh, right. They kept the old bad guy or one of the old bad guys in a computer. And that's why they were on the run. Eh, it's a little bit bigger than that. Uh, like I said before, this movie consistently delivers satisfying action scenes. I think the fight where they first meet the Winter Soldier just has a lot of cool action sequences like back to back to back where we have Black Widow fighting the Winter Soldier and we have Steve using his shield to go against the minigun. We have Falcon holding off those guys so Steve can attack the Winter Soldier. And I think that them kind of trade throughout the entire, every time they fight Steve and the Winter Soldier, they do like this passing back and forth of the shield and I think that that's a really dynamic way for them to fight. Because up until now, 
Steve has kind of been the sole proprietor. Proprietor. Yeah, that one. Of the shield. He's he's the only one that's fought with the shield. So seeing him, seeing his enemy use it as a weapon back at him was cool. I think it added a lot of variety to their fighting style. Also, just in general, the Winter Soldier was way more terrifying with a knife than with a gun. I think one of the most common pieces of trivia that is known about this movie is how Sebastian Stan trained for like hours a day so that way he could do like knife tricks while he was fighting with a knife during this movie and it shows every time he fights with a knife is cooler than he than when he does any other kind of fighting on the bridge scene in the helicarrier just winter soldier with knife yes please wait don't take that no take that out of context i'm okay with it Another thing this movie does very well is portraying the concept of, like, internal hopelessness when you realize just how far gone S.H.I.E.L.D. is as an organization. So when Arnim Zola is like, yeah, we've been inside S.H.I.E.L.D. this whole time, you're kind of like, oh, there are probably a few, like, splinter agents, but overall, it's something that can be handled you know but when they do make their reveal and it's like most of shield you're kind of like oh we're a little bit boned here so i I just think that that was a feeling that they captured super well because fury felt a little hopeless hill felt a little hopeless just realizing that what they thought was the most secure organization on the planet in the galaxy was kind of doomed from the start and having that payoff that emotional turnaround i think i thought it was executed very well i liked it a lot however i do want to say something about another specific character and this specific character It's going to be a spoiler for Falcon and the Winter Soldier. If you haven't watched that, it's literally going to be 45 seconds. So on your podcast app, just hit 15 seconds three times starting now. Sharon Carter was wasted. Like as a character in the MCU, she was supposed to be Steve's best friend or not Steve's best friend, but she was introduced as like a trusted confidant for Steve. And then she ends up being the power broker. And I don't care what string of events led her to that point overall waste of a character in the mcu i like it it ended up being the antithesis of what her character should have been and what the carter name stands for i i'm severely disappointed by that one character and going back and watching this movie helped me realize that okay um just some final notes i think this is falcon's strongest movie until falcon and the winter soldier and also This is Black Widow's strongest movie, I think, just in general. You can make a case for Endgame, you can make a case for the first Avengers, but in my opinion, she has the best character in this movie. You know, she's not tied to Bruce like in Age of Ultron. She's not just, you know, a sacrificial lamb like in Endgame, but I felt like she played a dynamic part and wasn't just there to be the woman overall 
I think this movie held up very well for me. To I I don't want to go out on a limb and say it's my favorite, just in general, <clears throat> but it's top three. You know, this Avengers and the first Iron Man are all like super duper high. I'm giving this one a flat eight out of ten. It held up very well, and I'm and I'm glad I rewatched it. But it's definitely one of those movies. I don't I don't consider it as much as a popcorn movie as the other ones. So I don't know if I could rewatch it as frequently as I could, like Iron Man or Avengers. But like I said, flat eight out of ten. I enjoyed it a lot, and I will see you in the next review. All right. Before I start, I want to say one thing. I started this movie way later than I should have, and also I'm recording this very close to my bedtime, so it's a race to see if I have the energy to do this review. Now, uh, this we're, we're at Guardians of the Galaxy right now, and the context that I wanted to give before I started it is this was the MCU movie that I saw the most in theaters uh, I saw this movie three times in theaters and that's kind of what made me hesitant to ever go back to watch it on top of me seeing it so many times in theaters and holding like having it hold such high esteem in my head you know in my opinion the Guardians only got worse through the MCU I didn't like Guardians 2 I didn't really love their involvement in Infinity War or Endgame, but but like Guardians One, um, good. It was good, and I but so I was hesitant to ever watch it, and I was afraid that kind of like my memory of it was going to be ruined during this watch of it. But I could not have been more wrong. I hit play on Disney Plus the first cur. The first chord of the first song started and I'm like, I was immediately teleported back. Like it was very rarely do you get like a purely trans transportational uh, mode of cinema and like that. I don't know what it is, but that opening song just like it, 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 it did it for me. Um, And, you know, speaking of the music, it is not a new idea to say that this movie intertwines music into its plot better than almost any other movie has before. The only movie that I can think of that comes close to it, that does it in the same style is baby driver, you know, not even guardians two does the music as well. You know, this movie does sound, does it soundtrack so well that the only way it could have been better is if it was just straight up a musical, but obviously we're not going to get that. The thing about the soundtrack that I think that makes it so important is it's the songs, specifically the eighties songs, you know, the awesome mix, the songs that come from that are very carefully placed throughout the movie. So every time one of those songs comes up, you know, that not only is this scene important, it's going to be cool or maybe not cool, but just like, you know, that like you're going to remember it walking away from this movie. You know, the intro music was made. It feel super important. Even when he's getting um, his Walkman back in the prison 
and they're playing the Pina Colada song as he's flying out, it still makes that feel important. And not and not many other movies, I think, take the care into their soundtrack like this movie does. And, and it shows. And it shows with this movie. Specifically, I think the way... I, I talked before about how, like, just starting the movie, hearing the music, brought me back to... It, it made me feel like I was watching it for the first time. Kind of. But... It also heightened the emotions of that scene, that first scene. And I watched that first scene in a way that I never really felt like I have before because it's been so long since I watched it. And I'm going to be honest, I cried. I cried during that opening scene um, watching Peter have to watch his mother die and then immediately get kidnapped was, you know, it's a little emotional. It's a, it's a little emotional. Uh, other things, I think I love Peter's style in this movie. And Peter's style is apparent in literally every every part of him in this movie. Uh, his clothes, his technology, his speech, his spaceship, his, the way he interacts with everybody. It is so incredibly stylized and it works in favor for his character every single time. And this whole stylization concept bleeds through for the entire movie. Not because it, it's not just Peter, you know, you notice it first with Peter because it's so glaring. But later on, every planet exterior that we see has a really unique look to it. And every planet surface has like a cool vibe to it. And the thing that really struck me was space itself. You know, it's super easy to make space just be like, oh, this cool blue purple nebula type deal. But this movie added different colors. Nowhere was green. I don't know if we've ever really seen. Maybe we have and I'm just stupid. But I think I don't. I've never seen green space so predominantly featured in a movie and have it also just have it be done as well. It created a lot of cool variation that made this a visual treat in terms of characters. I think that Karen Gillan doesn't get enough credit for how well she portrays Nebula. Nebula doesn't get a lot of action in this movie. She's very much like, She's hardly a supporting character, but I know Karen Gillan as Amy Pond in Doctor Who and knowing what she's like in that and seeing her in this. Like, obviously, that's the point of acting. You're not carrying the same character from piece to piece. But I just think that Karen Gillan does a just such a fantastic job at not doing what she's known for. And it's super cool. Uh, she's a really cool character, and I and I love the way she she evolves throughout the MCU. There aren't too many like straight up action sequences in this movie. I don't think there are a few, obviously, but there aren't a lot. And I just want to say that I think my favorite action sequence in this is at the very beginning when when Gamora tries to steal the orb, and Rocket and Groot get involved, and the way they were just like juggling the orb back and forth with each other and 
Groot and Rocket were trying to get Peter. Like, I think there was just a really cool dynamic to that fight. And specifically, if I wanted to call it my favorite point of that, was when Gamora and Peter were on the ground and they were like fighting horizontally. I thought that was just a really cool bit of choreography. But obviously, the thing that this movie is known for is like it's one of the funniest MCU movies. And I think that definitely stands true. I was laughing a lot in this movie. I don't know if I was laughing like more than I did during like Iron Man or what have you, but this movie is definitely written more like a comedy than it is the, than the other movies. (laughs) And I just wanted to highlight one specific thing is, is I think it's really funny when, when they're able to telegraph a joke and basically tell their audience, Hey, this is the joke we're going to do. And they're still able to pull it off and make it funny. It's like that Dave Chappelle bit where he's like, I'm going to tell you the punchline and you're still going to laugh. And the scene that I wrote this note down for was when they're in the prison and root root and rocket is explaining, okay, I need this power source. Uh, but when we get this power source, it's going to trigger all the alarms. So we need to make sure that we get it last. And as he's explaining this, we just see Groot in the background, just slowly pulling at the power source and yanking it and yanking it and yanking it. And we're like, oh, obviously he's going to set off the alarms and it's, you know, he's going to disrupt Rocket's plan. Like, that's the joke. We see it coming from literally a mile away. But it it's, it was still funny. And I think that that's just kind of like this movie knew that it was silly and goofy. And I think that's the movie's strong point is when it is silly and goofy, it's it, it's strong. But this movie also had moments of intimacy, which I thought were really cool. There's the scene where Gamora and Peter are on the balcony at nowhere and they share a very tender moment. And and I like and I liked it a lot. And there's a moment, you know, at the end where after Groot has blown up and Drax is petting Rocket and there's just kind of a moment there. You know, there's no joke. There's just like Drax is there for Rocket. And I thought that was really cool. Now, not to say this movie is perfect. Uh, First of all, the entire third act was like one scene. It wasn't a bad scene. It wasn't. It was just the it was incredibly stationary. The first two thirds of this movie was very much a space romp. You know, we started at Earth. Then we went to the place where he got the orb. Then we went to Xandar. Then we went to the jail. Then we went to nowhere like there. It was a very diverse. There were very diverse locations. And I thought that was really cool. And then we just spend the entire third act on one planet like over 30 minutes of this movie is in one is on one planet and i it it, it got boring a li- not a little well, sorry it got boring a little um on top of that i do not like drax <laughs> just like in general he gets worse later on and he's he didn't start great i know he's kind of like a fan favorite i know people like to reference his like like when people quote Guardians, they usually quote Drax. I never thought he was funny. That whole taking everything literally bit 
I don't know. I don't think it makes for a good character. I also don't like his motivations were cool. Not cool, but like I under his motivations were sympathetic. And you know, you want I, as an audience member, I wanted to see him succeed, but that was kind of the only thing we got from him. It was either I make dumb jokes or I want to kill because of my family. And he just wasn't a very dynamic character, even as far as comedic relief characters go. Uh, most of the dialogue is fine in this movie. I don't think any of it is like super right home about, but the my least favorite kind of dialogue. And it only happens in specific scenarios. And this movie happened to fit the specific scenario is whenever there's a one sided conversation, the uh, the person that we hear has always has to speak for the other person and there's a way that it can be handled well and there's a way that it can be handled poorly and i feel like it was handled poorly this time where you know we couldn't understand what Groot was saying so rocket always had to be like oh yeah that thing you just said well how about this new introduction of a topic and i was like all right It, it it's frustrating just to like here to under to go into a conversation knowing that it's gonna take as long as a normal conversation but one person is gonna be saying everything twice and there's a way where you can write a conversation and where as an where the audience can still understand what the other person said without blatantly repeating it back to us and I think there was one conversation where Rocket didn't do that. And every other time just felt so annoying. I also don't like the dynamic of the Ravagers. Uh, I don't care for Yondu. I don't care for that whole group. They just felt like the convenience of anything. Oh, we need them to be in danger? Get the Ravagers. Oh, we need someone to save them? Get the Ravagers. They didn't feel important until we were told they were important. They never really felt like a real threat. I think the special effects in this movie were very good. Like I said, the stylization was all very reliant on special effects they've held up over these years. Um, There was like one... <laughs> there's one shot of Roman, Ronin, rather... That I just that was super doofy and not great, but everything else looked really cool. The two things I wanted to highlight is when Nebula and Gamora are fighting on the ship, and Nebula like shocks Gamora, and they do like that fun little like transparent skin sees the skeleton type deal. I don't know why I like that. I just do. And also that scene where they're all holding on to the Infinity Stone together. Just like that dome of purple energy and the way it was like graphing their skin was super cool. And I it was a visual treat. Overall, this movie was funny. This movie was cool. This movie this movie held up. I think it's definitely one of my favorite MCU movies. This is one of those movies that like can stand alone you know even if we weren't working even if we weren't talking about the infinity stones or anything this movie stands by itself as an incredible piece of sci-fi comedy 
so I think I'm going to give it a flat eight. Honestly, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Uh, thank you very much. And I will see you. I think, I think age of Ultron is next. Yeah. 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 Oh, right. We are moving on to Avengers age of Ultron. And because I did not like this movie when I originally watched it, I decided to bring in a guest for a second opinion. Introduce yourself, our special guest. Hi, I'm Bug. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so Age of Ultron, I think, is just considered in general, like, a lot of people don't like it. It is the subpar Avengers movie. It is weak. Um, and I definitely agree. Listen, we were so we watched this movie together, right? And while we were watching it, we were like, um, we were point we went in both kind of being like we're not expecting much. But we found ourselves laughing a lot more than I think we intended. Definitely. And there were a lot of like good action sequences, which uh I think kind of saved this movie. When we were going in with low expectations. We discussed before beginning the movie that this was in our top three least favorite MCU movies overall. And within the first 30 seconds, there's this really cool group scene and it's super epic. And we're like, of course, that happens in the first 30 seconds. And then there's one other scene that even holds up close to it. Yeah, because the best thing about the Avengers is the fact that they're an ensemble, right? And so in the beginning, you get that, like, uh, vertical uh, ensemble shot, and then in the end, you get that, you know, circle ensemble shot with them fighting. And those are really cool shots. But I think the big thing that, like, a lot of people grimace about is the plot sucks. Like, the two things that people grimace about is the plot sucks and the whole Bruce-Natasha thing, like, ruins a good chunk of it. I'm so mad that they did it that way because that could have been a power couple in the MCU and they just ruined it. Yeah. Um. Um, overall, so, like, in regards to, like, the plot sucking, the reason, the thing that really nailed it down for me the thought that I had that I think best expresses the overall, you know, disappointment is this movie made it really hard to side with the Avengers because a lot of people die and a lot of things get destroyed because Tony and Ruffalo, his name isn't Ruffalo, his name is Bruce, <laughs> get a little too over their heads in terms of creating this AI. So it's really hard for you to be like, yeah, these are the good guys when like, this is all their fault. But at the same time, I think that's kind of like, the whole premise of the movie is like identifying all of their weaknesses and making them aware of all of their weaknesses so then they can move forward. But they just didn't, do it in a way to where even at the end, you're like, I don't know about this. Yeah, because you walk away and you're like, man, a lot of people got hurt. Like, we can't find half the team. And I guess we're just okay with that. The resolution wasn't fulfilling enough. 
Yeah. And, oh my god. And, like, this movie just had a bunch of things that were set up that never ended up paying off. You know, the Bruce Natasha thing is one thing. But I think another thing that I forget that happened frequently, I frequently forget is a thing that happened, is the final shot of this movie is them at the Avengers facility. And it's Falcon, War Machine, Wanda, and Vision all, like, in that little, you know, little section. And it's like, a lot of people theorized, oh, like, this is going to be like a West Coast Avengers or, you know, something like that. But no, they're just more characters in a movie. And the way that Steve goes, like, Avengers assemble to those guys, you're like, oh, the next Avengers movie is going to be Steve, Natasha, and these four. Also incorrect. Speaking of Vision, can we discuss the nod to Age of Ultron in WandaVision? Yes. So this is a spoiler for WandaVision. If you haven't seen it, there's a scene literally in the final episode where Vision is facing off with another Vision and they're like circling each other about six feet off the ground, like having a conversation with each other and going back and rewatching this movie. There's an exact same scene, except it's Vision and Ultron. Six feet above the ground, hovering, looking at each other, talking. And we and like Bug and I just looked at each other and we're just like, oh <laughs> it was just like a it was a very nice, if it was supposed to be an homage, it was done very well. I like Clint's family. A lot of people think that um Clint having a family was like a weak character choice or it was unnecessary or it muddied everything. First of all, how dare you be offended that Linda Cardellini is in your movie? Straight up. Second, I I think that like, you know, even compared to Natasha, Clint is the most human person on the Avengers and him having a family humanizes him even like it, it it's a touchstone like, hey, don't forget how human you are. I think if anything, which obviously this is the less popular of an opinion, but it agrees with you, Craig, is that it made him a stronger character because it showed his motivations for yeah. everything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the moment we decided collectively that this movie was better than we remembered but still not good was that scene where Ultron first appears in Avengers Tower and he uh and he attacks them and Steve kicks up the table like as yes. the, like as the blast is being fired and like mm, yeah this is the Avengers action like this is what I wanted also the scene where they're all trying to pick up Thor's hammer, whose name I will never be able to pronounce. Mjolnir? Yes. It just doesn't work with my mouth. We're me, not going to talk about it. Me, Ulner. Mjolnir. Yeah, that, that was it. <laughs> that was like that, was, that was like whenever white people try and order in Spanish at oh, a Mexican can restaurant. I have a, can, I, uh, can I have a carne asada? <laughs> can I have a carne acida? Can I have a quesadilla and a... Can I have a enchilada? Can I have a tortilla with a side of Mjolnir? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that part was a lot more humorous than I remember it being, as well as the look on Thor's face when Mjolnir 
moves just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, when uh, Steve is trying to pick it up. Um, I liked James Spader as Ultron. Um, I think it added a really... Hum- uh, we're using this word a lot, but it added a humanistic side to Ultron, mm-hmm. which was cool. Um, however, Ultron was never really that threatening. I just like he was a big hunk of metal, and we like we already got Tony Stark. Yeah, it's not like it, he wasn't a perfect match for Tony because we've already had that before, and he wasn't a perfect match for Vision, even though that's kind of what they were trying to go with. His Vision was supposed to be the antithesis of Ultron, but like. It doesn't like there's it's not there's something that doesn't quite click. Vision is more invested in Ultron than Ultron is in Vision. And I think that's kind of the crux of it. Absolutely. Um the fact that we've gone this long without <laughs> talking about the Maximoff twins uh kind of goes to show <laughs> their general relevance to this movie. Despite the fact that they are like the number 2 antagonists in this movie, like they're there for, they're literally Ultron's goons for most of the movie. Yeah. And then they, and then they help the Avengers with one fight scene and then boom, they're the Avengers now. Like, all right, cool. I mean, cool, but like, okay. Yeah. Cool. And only one of them survives. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, I don't know. I just wish we could have gotten one more movie out of Quicksilver. Right? Like, that's something that I've complained a lot about in the MCU, is that we're always one beat short of what I think we need. You know, we needed one more scene with Bucky before he fell. We needed one more interplanetary romp in Guardians of the Galaxy. We needed one more movie with Quicksilver, and then us as the audience would have resonated with Quicksilver's death a little bit more than just making memes out of it. And I definitely noticed in this watch through just how many moments of foreshadowing there are for the end result of Quicksilver. Yeah, I I think I made a joke about it while we were watching. Like, they need to make as many jokes about Quicksilver as they can because there are no more opportunities later in the the franchise. Exactly. (laughs) Um... Like, like I said, it was hard to resonate with the Avengers during this movie. Um, it, like, during the Hulkbuster scene, it was just, like, the end result is it was something that the, it was a problem the Avengers created, and it took out half a town. And, t- like, yeah, Tony sent in his Stark relief aid, but that's a bandage on an existing wound that you caused. Okay, so while we were watching that scene, you mentioned that you thought it was too early in the movie, and I told you to re-talk about that with me, re-bring that up with me once we finish. Do you still hold that opinion? Yeah, so I, so with the conversation that we had was like, I don't think, because the Hulkbuster scene comes like at about an hour in the movie, and I'm like, the Hulkbuster scene should be an act three scene. In whatever movie it's in, it is a it is an important enough topic to have be a climactic moment. But you know, there's there's plot justifications as to why it's so early, because we need to have Bruce question his relationship with the Hulk even more than he already was. And the Hulkbuster scene 
does that. Um, I just think that they've never handled the Hulk character well in any Avengers ever. So I think there should have been... I, I, I just don't... I, I, I wish that the Hulkbuster was just in a different movie than this one. Like, I wish that the Hulkbuster wasn't part of the plot, but rather, like, kind of more of the resolution. So that's kind of where I'm standing, is, like, the Hulkbuster sequence was cool, should have been in a different movie that was more relevant to the Hulkbuster. I can agree with that, but I also liked how in that scene was the one moment throughout most of the MCU that you see Tony Stark have real genuine regret on his face yeah. for punching him. Cause there's a scene cause there's a sequence where he basically like he's punching the Hulk. The Hulk grabs one of the arms and ri- or like rips part of the suit out. A very vital part of the suit. And you see pure fear in Tony's eyes and he just goes, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, also, listen, we can't not talk about Black Widow, right? Like, I, I, honestly, all things considered, Black Widow was fine in this movie. The fact that she was basically a fix for the Hulk is kind of not great. Her purpose was being the fix, you know, for another man is, like, not great. Um, That scene where she equivalates not being, you know, being sterile, being infertile to being a Hulk monster. That's been talked to death as to why that's super gross. Yeah, they just, they really do her dirty almost every movie. Yeah, and I mentioned in The Winter Soldier, that is the best Black Widow movie. She has the most characterization in that movie. And then we see her two movies later in Age of Ultron, like, yeah, ready for Black Widow. Oh, Oh, so the thing that she was doing with, like, Steve and everything, that's, oh, we're not doing that. And we're doing a new thing and also abandoning that new thing by the end of the movie. I, yeah, in Winter Soldier, she was Natasha. She was the Black Widow, a badass. But then they just make her this week there for, to be flirted with and be fawned over and you know, fix the Hulk. She's the only one who can get him to calm down and become Bruce again. Like, we're not here to fix angry men. (laughs) Another, this is just like a detail that I don't like. There was a scene, like, the fight sequence in Sokovia felt very similar to the New York fight scene in the first Avengers. But, like, I understand that that's a problem of having an ensemble movie. You need a fight scene where everybody is fighting and everyone gets a moment to shine. And the easiest way to do that is by having a thousand foot soldiers. But there was a point where they were like, where they were on a bridge in Sokovia. And I'm like, this feels a lot like the bridge scene in New York. I definitely agree. But also, you mentioned that if they turn down the saturation on this movie, it would be a straight up horror movie. It would be a horror, like you could rewrite Age of Ultron to be a horror movie. Like even if we just removed the superhero aspect, the way, the specifically the things that made me think about it is all the, all of um, Ultron's sentries 
like crawl around like spiders and like like zombies yeah like spiders and like they're either crawling on all fours or they're walking in a hurried limp motion and it's just one of those things like there are scenes where they're like crawling through cracks in walls and like hey if we darken this movie a little bit and got rid of the quips this is a horror movie without a doubt um i think i'm gonna give this a flat seven it was fun. It had its good moments. I am not keen to rewatching it anytime soon. No, this was only my second time watching it because I didn't really like it the first time. So I'm going to have to agree because it was better than I remember it being when I first saw it. All right. Uh, there you have it. That was Age of Ultron. Up next is Ant-Man, we don't end the phase with Avengers like we normally do. Um, so we have, a, we have to watch Ant-Man to, to end this phase. So I will see you in that review. All right, here we go. Final movie, MCU Phase 2, Ant-Man. Here we go. This movie is weird. And not in like a kooky kind of weird or like even like a fun kind of weird. It is fun weird. It 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 is fun weird, but it has to become fun weird. This movie starts weirder than any other MCU movie has started so far because we start with this whole like scene in the 90s or whatever with Hank and Peggy and Howard and they're like, and you watch them have a falling out over the pin particle. And I don't know, maybe I, <laughs> it, it was a weird flashback that had a lot of important characters for like 90 seconds. It, obviously, it was very pivotal to like the characterization of Hank Pym, but it still felt, I, I don't want to say it was a long scene for almost nothing to happen. But it was still a short scene in sen- in the sense that, like, it felt like this is something that could have been exchanged through dialogue halfway through the movie. So we start with a tone that's not, we don't see for the rest of the movie. This weird, like, argumentative, like, men in suits, you know, men in suits, air quotes type tone and we kind of get that a little bit throughout the movie but that's not what the rest of the movie feels like and to be honest this whole movie doesn't really feel like one thing so we immediately after this scene we have paul rudd you know getting out of prison and we are immediately given a comedic tone with louise doing that whole bad thing, bad thing, good thing, little, almost like a little monologue that he does that, you know, got memed into oblivion and still does. And so we got a comedic tone from that. We got a comedic tone from Paul Rudd working at Baskin Robbins. And then we kind of get like this, like almost sentimental tone. I don't think it, I don't think it was strong enough for like me to like super really feel it, but Having Paul Rudd at his daughter's birthday party. Also, hold on. I just want to say, I know his name is Scott Lang. I know that. 
but Paul Rudd kind of like transcends any other title. You, you know what I mean? So Paul Rudd goes to his daughter's birthday party and he gets kicked out. And as an audience, we're kind of like, uh, at least me, I kind of understood both sides. Like it's a, it's a kid's birthday party. And this guy literally just got out of prison and doesn't have a job, doesn't have anything set up. Like, I understand their hesitation, but because we know Paul Rudd is the main character, we kind of want him to succeed a little bit anyway. And so there's kind of there's kind of that like conflicting sentimental value that we get from that scene. And then we jump right back into, you know, heisting and crimes and whatnot. And the first crime scene was kind of cool. I think in my opinion, the heist crew was still kind of annoying. They were a little underdeveloped. They had a few quips, but all in general, just like were lacking in terms of being Paul Rudd's partners. But the heist itself, the the breaking into Hank's house anyway, had some really cool moments. I think it showed Paul Rudd's ingenuity, having him put the mattress on the ground and freezing the safe. I, that's that one sequence was purely to show us, hey, this guy is intuitive and he knows what he's doing. And it worked because from that point on, whenever he modified anything, you're like, I believe that he knows he can do this. Um, Just to backtrack a little bit, this movie did have one little trope that this is such a nitpicky thing to point out, but it but it happened and it was frustrating in the moment. My explanation of it is going to take longer than the thing that actually happened. And it's the scene where we first meet old Hank Pym, like modern Hank Pym. And he shows up to Pym Industries or Pym Tech or whatever it is. And he goes to the security guard and he's, and the security guard's like ID. And he just gestures towards the painting of him on the wall. And he's like, I'm sure that will suffice. Stop it. No, just show him the ID, man. But that scene also, the scene where Hank Pym, like, has that conversation with Corey Stroll's character. Like, that scene wastes no time establishing the dynamic of characters in this movie. Which is to say, we never don't think Corey Stroll is going to be the antagonist of this movie. Right? He puts his shoulder on this one, or he puts his hand on this one guy's shoulder. And he's like, hey... I value your opinion. Let's talk about this after the demonstration. And I can only imagine that everybody just like looked at each other in the theater. Like that's the bad guy, right? Like we know that's the bad guy. And then like 90 seconds later, he vaporizes the guy. Hey, look who's surprised. No one. But I don't think having an antagonist plot twist is important to a movie. And I don't think that knowing the antagonist so early, like this is a bad thing. It's just something I'm acknowledging. I'm not knocking points for it. I'm not giving it points for it. But I do want to say that just like a note that I put throughout this entire movie is Corey Stroll is acting his pants off the entire time. Like, I do not think that the character he played, uh, Darren was his name. I do not think that Darren was a particularly well-written villain. He had kind of boring motivations. He had a kind of boring plan. But 
Corey Stroll, I think, is a good actor. And so when he was in the scene, I think he kind of commanded every scene he was in. So I'm I'm going to give an A-plus to Corey Stroll for this whole movie. Corey Stroll's character was the only character that didn't have, like, massive tone shifts throughout this entire movie. This movie is best when it's cartoony. So when you have a movie like Ant-Man, where the entire premise is, hey, here's this guy that shrinks down to the size of a fabric of carpet. You have a lot of room to play with that dynamic, and this movie does. I think one of the best... This movie is at its best when Paul Rudd is shrunk, right? Whether it's an infiltration, whether it's a fight scene, like whatever it is, it is, this movie is best when it's shrunk because it allows itself to be, like I said earlier, more cartoony. It takes itself less seriously. And because we see these moments, when the movie does take itself seriously, I feel like it drags really bad. So almost every time, pretty much whenever they're in Hank's house, it felt boring. When when they got Paul Rudd out of prison and they were having the conversation with him, like, hey, we need you to be the Ant-Man. That felt boring. When they had when they were planning the heist in the in the house, that felt boring. Like the only thing that I didn't find like inherently boring was the training sequence and the and the scene where Hank uh, confides in Hope, like, hey, this is really what happened to your mom. Like, I thought those two scenes were pretty much the only two house scenes that were engaging. But once the heist starts, this movie goes to 100. Like, I have never seen a movie so plagued with a bogged down first half than this movie. Once this heist starts and we enter like the final 45 minutes of this movie, this movie soars. Like all the heist characters or like all the crew members like Louise and the other two guys whose name I can't remember. They felt less like comedic reliefs just kind of sitting there and like they felt like part of the team. The bits that they did in the with the van and in the van, those were funny. And like I was I was kind of looking forward to those scenes when they cut back to the van. I'm like, all right, we're going to get like 30 seconds of just like so, just something great. And we did all the shrinking stuff, you know, traveling through the water pipe and having the ants fry the servers like those were all like cool sequences. And Louise and Hope going through the uh, like getting the security down. That was a, there was a lot of cool stuff happening. And so I just think this movie had a lot of exposition to get through for it to let itself have fun. And I know that this movie had a lot of production problems in terms of its creative team. And I know that I think Edgar Wright was the original director for this movie and he ended up leaving directing. So they had to bring somebody else in and that, and I don't know which parts were Edgar Wright and which parts weren't, but you can tell that there are bits of this movie that are fun and bits of this movie that just needed to like get through things like obviously that scene at the Avengers facility was purely so they could put a better Avenger in the movie and kind of give us as an audience kind of like a moment to be like, okay, I know that guy. I know that guy. Yeah, I know that guy. 
And that, that scene was fun. It didn't really serve a lot in terms of plot, but they made it essential so that way they could go there. But they could have not gone there. They went there for one thing that was for one part of the heist. It like if they didn't if they didn't want that scene, they wouldn't have that scene. And I think it served it well. I think I I, I like the Falcon a lot, and I think he was the perfect person to have in this scene. Not just because he was probably the cheapest, but like he, f- I just th- I just think that he fits Ant Man's tone as. Uh, better than any of the Avengers could have, except me. Like, they probably could have put Hawkeye in there, but like, no. Listen, I understand. So I just want to like. So I think I just want to wrap this up by saying, when it's small, it's fun. The entire Yellow Jacket fight scene, the entire time he's wearing the Yellow Jacket suit and he's fighting Paul Rudd. I think that it's fun. This movie lets itself let go. And I was laughing a lot and I was engaged a lot. I thought throwing all the toy trains was super fun and enlarging enlarging the Thomas Tank engine the Thomas the Tank engine had me laughing out loud. I think this movie found its footing just a little too late. Um I'm going to give this movie a 6.75 out of 10 because there was so much room for this movie to grow and I can't not acknowledge that I just wish I wish that it I wish that it was where it was at the beginning of the third act in the first act not in terms of like plot development or anything but just like knowing what it wanted to be because the heist the height like when they did heisty things it was cool i like heist movies and this movie kind of scratched that itch just a teeny little bit just enough to make me want to wish that it did it more so i'm giving this a 6.75 out of 10 and i think i'm okay with that i really don't like the first half of this movie but that is the end of the mcu phase two Oh, now I have to think of all the movies I, I, I reviewed, and now I have to think of an overall MCU Phase Two rating. Give me a second. I'm gonna like look through the movies. So overall, there was really only one bad movie in Phase Two, right? Like Thor: The Dark World was the worst one by far. Age of Ultron, better than I expected, but like still not great. Ant Man, not great. Iron Man 3 was better, and then Guardians and Winter Soldier are fantastic. So, I think I'm going to give Marvel, I think I'm going to give Phase 2 a 7.5 out of 10. I don't recall what I gave Phase 1, so I don't know. I think this is an improvement. I'm pretty sure this is an improvement. Um, We're just more comfortable with all these characters now. The, the cinematic universe took some risks. It paid off sometimes, and sometimes it didn't. Two of these movies I would watch on a dime. Two of them I would need a little bit of convincing. And then two of them I probably wouldn't. So when I put it like that, mm, maybe seven and a quarter. But Guardians and Winter Soldier were so good. Yeah, I'm sticking with my seven and a half. Those two movies carry this phase to a seven and a half. Um, 
but yeah, so that's where we're sitting right now. Next, so the plan is I am going to separate into phases three and four. So phase three is going to be really long because I'm pretty sure there are like 10 movies in phase three. And then phase four is going to include like the TV shows. And by the time I'm able to record, some of the phase four movies will come out. The phase four episode, I'm going to be honest, probably isn't going to come out until next year. (laughs) I know that seems like a long way off. But phase four, I plan on having the the TV shows that are out by then. Black Widow, Shang-Chi, The Eternals, and the Spider-Man movie. So, I know this is all like way in the future. I'm just more talking to myself. But anyway, thank you very much for listening. This was the Permanent Podcast. My name is Craig Wells, a.k.a. Permanent Handle. And I will see you next time. Have fun. Be safe. And make good choices. Ba-ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba-